Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. I am Bree, one of your hosts, and I have with me today... I'm Valerie. Hi, everyone. Today, as in always, she's always here with me. Um, We here at the Glittering Bell Jar, if you don't know, we have started at the very back of the last book, and we are working our way backwards. So we're working our way up to the first book, um, reading each chapter and trying to break down how we feel about each episode and new things that we're catching. Valerie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say I was in the shower today, and I was thinking about when we get to the end of this season. So if uh-huh. you're not familiar, um, and we probably haven't really said this, but we're going to do this in seasons where we do a book, and then we do the movie, and then we take a short break. Um, and that just allows us to kind of moderate our workflow. For those of you mm-hmm. listening, just so you're not surprised, uh, we're going to be taking a break at the end of Deathly <laughs> Hallows to get ourselves ready for Half-Blood Prince. Yes. And uh, anyway, I was in the shower, and I thought of this fantastic intro for the final episode when we talk about the movie which is that, well, the movies, I guess I should say, but it's that mm. we're at the beginning of the end or is it the end of the beginning? Mm. Because we are doing it in both, we're kind of doing it in both directions. Anyway, it was in my head and it was very clever and now I can't quite remember how I phrased it, which means it won't be that good when we record that episode, but I hope you'll <laughs> stick around until we get there because I'm actually really excited. So we're we're definitely like halfway, moving yes. halfway through Deathly Hallows, which is astonishing because it doesn't seem like, we've covered that much. And then we're covering all these topics that are like really the heart and meat of this story. And that means that before we know it, we're going to be watching the films to kind of do a retrospective or a not an unretrospective because we're not looking back. We're looking forward when we watch the films and then comparing that to our notes from the books. And it's just going to be a really interesting episode. It's kind of come into my mind lately, how we're going to address that with the film watching and recapping what we've covered so far in the season. Mm -hmm. But all that to say, it's going to be great. Stick around. If you're with us in real time, we appreciate it. We've gotten some new reviews this week on mm-hmm. Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate those. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we always want to hear from you. So here's that helpful little plug. That word of mouth is what podcasts live and die on. So if you are enjoying this podcast, uh, you can wait till the end of the episode if this is your first one. We would really appreciate your feedback. Absolutely. We love the stars on Apple Podcasts. We love getting reviews. So just uh, take a few minutes at the end and let us know what you think. It does really make a difference in our ability to keep going with this project and uh, also, of course to pay the bills, you know, when we we don't do this exclusively for fun, that we are obviously Harry Potter fans and having reviews and feedback helps a ton to help grow this podcast too. Yep. Keeps the light on. It does. It does. It keeps the mics running, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We know what we are getting into your favorite movie at this point of the book. We're, we're in your favorite movie. Yep. We are. We are. So as a reminder, everyone, we uh, have been sharing little bits of trivia about ourselves throughout these episodes as part of our Gilderoy Lockhart style quiz, which we will cover at some point in this week's episode. But last week, I believe it was in episode seven, we talked about our favorite films and mine is Deathly Hallows part one. So this is the meat of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really interesting because I don't know that I've seen part one more than I've seen part two, but I have a much clearer 
visual mm-hmm. uh, representation of these chapters, especially the ones we're covering today from the films. Yeah, 100%. Than from like any of the other chapters we've covered. I can see, I can mm-hmm. see it as it was in the films, not necessarily as I originally imagined it. Yeah, just because it was, it was so awkward to me, but we can get into that. I actually, you know, I want to cover a little bit of feedback that we got before we jump into these chapters. Um, so one piece of feedback, something funny that eventually maybe we'll, we'll cover is the pronunciation of Asio, Akio. <laughs> well, yeah, everything yeah, I have yeah. gotten. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, um, the pronunciation of everything is so, so interesting because everyone says it different. Um, another word was Voldemort. Um, a lot of people say it Voldemort. Yeah, you can usually Google to see which one Rowling prefers, but it doesn't matter. There are so many different versions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit as we realized we were saying things differently. And generally, the official pronunciation is the film version, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people and people of much longer uh, heritage in Harry Potter realms in the wizarding world will say it differently than the films because that's how they learned it or that's how they say it and so you'll notice that Bree and I obviously have differences like we yeah we do say it differently from one another and we don't correct each other because it's just how we have learned yeah. to say it um, but we will do a fun episode at some point about all the different pronunciations that are out there I, I was thinking about Voldemort I think I say it with a t but a very very soft t it's not a silent t but mm. it's like it's in there. Okay. But it's not like t- at the end. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think I pronounce everything three different ways, depending on if I've listened to the audiobook or the movies. I'm like one of those people that if I go to another country, I start getting their accent very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Not, not strong in any of those definitions, but yeah, yeah uh, we got that. And then there was another piece of advice or not advice feedback, which was actually a little sad. Um, my friend Kit, he actually said he definitely believes that Fred did not become a ghost, which we agreed on. It, it likely did not happen. But the reason he didn't want it to happen was actually quite sad. He said it would be really sad for all of his family to like go back to Hogwarts and see Fred, which is really true. Because like, would George just stay at Hogwarts all the time? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I wonder if we'll get any more into ghost lore. Maybe maybe in a few <laughs> a few months longer than that when we hit Chamber of Secrets and we talk about nearly have this next death day party mm-hmm. because there is a bit more about like and and even uh, the end of ha- uh, Order of the Phoenix when Harry asks Nick why Sirius doesn't become a ghost. I think we kind of dabble into that um, and we can do a little bit more research ourselves when we're getting there. But yeah, I think I don't I think we agree that Fred wouldn't be a ghost and um maybe if maybe if I were going to come back as a ghost I might just like not go back where the people I know are oh. until later right cuz you're a ghost forevermore so you could just go somewhere else for the lifespan of the people you know and love and not make it harder for them to process your death mm-hmm. by being present in their lives So wait are you saying he doesn't have to be a ghost at Hogwarts? I don't think so. I mean, nearly had nearly had this Nick was not killed at Hogwarts, as far as we know. Oh, yeah. And and actually, we know this. We know that um, Helena Ravenclaw was not killed at Hogwarts as well, because she was killed in the Forest of Albania. So, right. oh, you can yeah. you can haunt wherever you want. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> right. Fred okay, is just haunting enough. somewhere else if he is a ghost. <laughs> but yeah, I think the interesting thing that made us think about that question at all was just that she used that word "ghost of his last laugh." Yes. On and that was sort of an interesting way of saying that at the mm-hmm. time of someone's death. I mean, it makes sense, but it was also an unusual phrasing that kind of just struck me that we should we should talk about that and see what we think is 
we're losing characters and basically none of the characters that we lose in the series come back as ghosts, even though we know witches and wizards can do that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe we'll do an episode on that. I love that. Yeah. We can add that to our someday bonus episodes. Okay. And then I have one more thing that I want to cover. Oh, first of all, is this the kit that got you into Harry Potter? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Thanks kit. If you're listening, (laughs) appreciate it. (laughs) Um, So the last thing I wanted to cover is last week's episode. I ended by talking about uh, my great mystery of who sold Xenophilius Lovegood, the Arumpent Horn. Because it just says, a delightful young wizard who knew of my interest in exquisite artifacts. And Mm -hmm. so I did a bit of research. And as far, I I can't tell who it is. There is no official confirmation of it being anyone in particular. So you had kind of proposed that maybe it was just like a guy who knows that Xenophilius will pay stupid money for things (laughs) and not know what they really are. And he's a smuggler, obviously. Um, Yeah, it's just an anonymous wizard who is out there doing bad, bad business. Um, I just think it's such an interesting little mystery. It's like, it reminds me of when uh, Quirrell poses and gives Hagrid or like gives Hagrid the dragon egg in exchange for information about Fluffy. It just kind of seems like a little gem like that, that might've been relevant, but sometimes I want to pull on threads and there is no thread. There's nothing there. So this this is apparently (laughs) one of those times. Bummer. Well, look at you. That's amazing. You researched that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I tried. I tried anyway. Yeah. Okay. Do we want to jump into the chapters? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Right. Okay. So as a reminder, everyone, we are doing each chapter of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where we start with the last sentence of the chapter, and then we go to the beginning of the chapter and we read it. And in the episodes, what we do is Brie gives us a synopsis, and then I read that last sentence, and then we discuss. So if you're reading along with us, last sentence, then the chapter, last sentence, then the chapter. But in the listening, you're just going to get the last sentence with a synopsis, and then we discuss what we've come up with from our reading. Yep. All right. Let's do it. So today we're going to be covering, starting with uh, chapter 19, The Silver Doe. So Harry and Hermione are out camping by themselves um, in the Forest of Dean. One night, Harry sees a doe of light and follows it. It takes him to a frozen pond where he sees the sword of Gryffindor. He jumps into the frozen pond to grab the sword, but the horcrux around his neck begins to strangle him. The next thing we know, he's on the snow, and it was Ron who had been the one to save him and retrieve the Sword of Gryffindor after leaving them weeks ago. So Ron's back, even though we we haven't technically missed him yet. (laughs) All right. And the last sentence of this chapter is, I still haven't ruled it out, came Hermione's muffled voice from beneath her blankets, but Harry saw Ron smiling slightly as he pulled his maroon pajamas out of his rucksack. And that doesn't have quite enough context, but I'm trying to just stick to the last sentence. Basically, Ron has just come back to camp with Harry and had a big fight with Hermione. And after after her reaction, he says it could have been worse. Remember the birds that she said on him, which was in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And Hermione hasn't yet ruled it out. So as you might recall, in past episodes, we did talk about sort of the reconciliation that the group goes through and how they, how it almost very rapidly goes from this level of anger that Hermione has in this chapter to mm-hmm. them making out <laughs> in uh, in the very end of the book. But it's like, of yeah. course, we've discussed there's many months in between here. In fact, this is just after Christmas again. So by the time they're making out, it's actually like six months later. Oh, wow. Because they the battle for Hog- the Battle of Hogwarts is in June. Right. So hmm. it's been a little while. They've had time to kind of work it out and build trust in one another again. For sure, from this from this point where Ron finally returns. Yeah, you know, I really like this chapter. I don't know that I used to because I found a lot of it awkward, um, exploring Ron's feelings and things like that. But uh, this time around, I I actually quite enjoyed it, um, understanding it maybe as a little bit older of an adult. I mean, I've been listening to them throughout my twenties, but um, 
yeah, I don't know. I found this interesting. Um, what did you think of the chapter? Yeah, this one, actually, I have more notes in this chapter than I do in the next one we're going to cover, which I have been eager to get to. I kind of get ahead of myself where I'm like, oh, what's going to be next <laughs> moving backward, which is funny because it requires me to kind of challenge my brain, like saying the alphabet backward, like, can I remember what happens in order? And really, I can't. So for the most part, I found that I don't ever remember how far back a thing happens. So we were just talking about the tale of the three brothers a few episodes ago, and then we covered it last last week or the week before. And then I was like, oh, I can't wait to get to the life and lives of Albus Dumbledore. And now we're already there. So things are, are moving very rapidly, <laughs> yeah. even though we're doing it in a very different order. Yeah, 100%. This chapter was really interesting, actually, yes. because it does have so much of Ron is really the focal character in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and revealing his character and explaining him a little bit more. And I actually had more sympathy. So I believe it was episode six or seven where I kind of talked about kids in large families and how they look out for each other and themselves. And I read this chapter and I realized that I was being a little bit harsh on Ron, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, that the Horcrux was affecting him, certainly, but also that this is a very challenging situation. I mean, one of the first things that jumped out to me, and I can't remember which chapter they mentioned is they have no heat in their tent. Right. (laughs) They are camping rough. Yeah. I didn't quite get that. And it's not obvious when you watch the films that they don't have a heated tent. I don't yeah. know. You know, like in the films, they have like a little wood stove and it like keeps it cozy yeah. or whatever. That is not this mm-hmm. story that, that actually was written is they're wearing all the clothes they have mm-hmm. They're you know, especially Harry has just come out of a traumatic experience. He's kind of feverish. Yep. He doesn't feel very well. And so they're camping in the cold of Britain in the winter with no heat other than in the Hermione's snow. Right. Hermione's bluebell flames, like that, that's all they have for heat. And that sort of... And a little jar that they just carried around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I a jar, like I'm thinking of like my coffee mug, like that's not enough to keep me warm, you know? No. Um, and so I think I'm, I'm will, I have more empathy for Ron when you mm-hmm. add in the real, the real struggles and the discomfort that they were facing, which I am not a huge outdoorsy person either. So I can appreciate that that would be challenging. Plus the Horcrux, which is literally poisoning his mind. And we see what that poison was in this chapter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I liked this chapter because of the fact that I agree with you. I think even before reading it backwards or backward is that I didn't necessarily love the character of Ron. He's often seen as whiny. He's always jealous of Harry. He's, you know, he's kind of dim-witted when it comes to Hermione and you just kind of get like frustrated about him. But like moving backwards now with this chapter, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to understand him a little bit more. And I'm like, actually, he he manages to fight his like insecurities and demons for a long time and stay best friends to a guy that he sometimes is jealous of. That's mm-hmm. pretty impressive mm-hmm. because he, you know, he chooses, here we go, but he chooses love like over his <laughs> insecurities and fears and <laughs> and jealousy. So... Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. There's a lot more to Ron's character. And I I also I think we'll get into it as we get into the notes. But the deluminator as an object, which helps him overcome his flaws in his character. Mm -hmm. It's all very interesting. Um, But I did want to start right at the beginning of the chapter that I love whenever Harry has a dream. Oh, okay. So I don't know if you've noticed that. But throughout the series, Harry's dreams, if not outright prophetic or visual, like visionary in that he's seeing Mm -hmm. into Voldemort's mind, he has very symbolic dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, This one less so, but I wanted to flag it just in case we pick up on it in other chapters and other books where he dreams of Nagini weaving in and out of a cracked ring and a wreath of Christmas roses. Um, There's a dream in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone that I think is super prophetic 
uh, and I've always been trying to figure out what the threads are of that dream. And maybe, maybe at some point I'll bring it up early just so we can kind of keep an eye out for it. But Harry doesn't just dream in the kind of wild way that we do. He often sees things, which sort of ties into some other notes I have about Harry's instinct. And, you know, he has a lot more unspoken, untaught magic Mm -hmm. that gets brought up in this chapter than we see typically addressed, especially when Hermione's involved because Hermione is so book smart and academic. So what was his dream about then? What was prophetic about it? In this dream? Yeah. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily prophetic, but it definitely, it's just very symbolic in that he's, the wreath of Christmas roses is what they lay on his parents' grave. And then you have Nagini weaving in and out of that, plus the horcruxes. It's clear he's he's working through what oh. the implications are of Voldemort. It's almost like, I guess, and I'm going to take a stretch here, but it's like Nagini represents Voldemort. Uh, the Horcrux is the ring, and then that the Hallows, like the graveyard and the cr- Christmas wreath, is that's the Hallows, right? Because that's where they see the symbol on Ignotus Peveril's grave. So it's like he's trying to make sense of these different things, even though he isn't quite aware even mm-hmm. what the Deathly Hallows are yet. He's picking up that there are these elements in his mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not dreaming, just remembering what happened. He's actually his mind is creating something new, and it's sort of symbolic of what he's facing in his dilemma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I dig that. I'm definitely not a dream interpreter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we know, if anyone's listening and they are, give us a, give us a shout. What do snakes mean? What do cracked rings mean? But also (laughs) I think it's just interesting as a, as a point to say, this is the first evidence we have of Harry dreaming because he doesn't really get a lot of sleep going forward in the remainder of Deathly Hallows, but his dreams, like he has the dream when he passes out in Trelawney's class, he has the dream of Snape and Malfoy and uh, the turban in Sorcerer's Stone. So he does have these dreams throughout the series that are relevant. Mm-hmm. And I just want to like remind everyone, okay, that's another thing I'm keeping my eye out for. Okay. And I will bring it back up. It probably won't be till future seasons, but we'll get there. Okay, cool. Uh, what about, so I thought it was super cute whenever he pulled out the Mor- Morador's map to look for Jenny. Oh, yeah. He was like lonely and he just pulls it out and he's like, oh, I wonder if Jenny, and he's like, oh no, she's at Christmas break. So she wouldn't be mm-hmm. at Hogwarts. I just thought that was like a little sweet moment and I'm looking forward to watching their relationship, especially backwards. I think it'll be fun to see them together when they kiss and when they, well, when they break up and then before when they kiss and then to see them like slowly throughout the series. Yeah, for sure. You know, uncoming together, I guess. You know, it's funny because when we're reading this, I definitely don't always pick everything up that you pick up. Like we catch different things and I didn't (laughs) even see that. The thing I caught in that same area was um, the throwback when Harry's sitting there on guard in the in the tent mm-hmm. and he hears what he thinks is the sound of cl- a cloak on the leaves just like in Sorcerer's Stone when Quirrell's out in the Forbidden Forest. I just oh. love those kinds of throwbacks that are happening and I thought they were just happening because we were at the end of the final book and no they're happening throughout and yeah. that's what I loved about the series when I read it is there would be these little gems that reminded you how far that the series had come and that's one of them. Yeah you know I saw that sentence but I was like I don't know what that's throwing back back to and I was like I can't wait to do this because I know that Valerie's gonna know <laughs> you know I know <laughs> yep. yeah yeah a lot there's a lot of that um and and I feel like sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes it's much more subtle where you have to distinctly remember a part of a f- book long not read at this point mm-hmm. yes and the Patronus um I found the Patronus to be interesting I mean we know from the last chapter uh with P- Professor McGonagall that the Patronus can also be a messenger. And so I'm assuming that's kind of what is happening here, a messenger in a way, but it was interesting. The sentence I read, they gazed at each other for several long moments and then she turned and walked away. I I found that interesting. Like it was an intimate moment between Harry and the doe. 
mm-hmm. and it's, it's showing mm-hmm. the magic is more it's not just this figure of light it, it's a, it has emotions of possibly the you know the one who's casting it but yeah i actually caught that section too because i thought it was interesting how she said the the story is written that harry felt an inexplicable familiarity with her um, yeah almost, yeah almost like Snape's vision of what Lily meant is familiar to mm. Harry because that's what your Patronus really is. It's a manifestation of your personal. So it's really Snape, right? It's like Snape's self yeah. that he's presenting forward in the in the form of the dough. And that his love for Lily comes through in a way that's recognizable to Harry. When you sort of put the two pieces together that Snape's like out in the woods somewhere <laughs> casting this yeah. spell and what, what it must mean and also like what it must cost him to see the dough and know what it represents. Mm that Harry can recognize his mother in Snape's presentation of his mother, even though these are two men that have never seen eye to eye on literally anything. Dang, Valerie, that was good. <laughs> that was Thank good. You. I like that. I told you, I had my coffee again. You, guys, <laughs> you better be ready. Now that I got the timing right, I'm getting the coffee into my system before we record. <laughs> no more COVID brain for me. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of his mother... I'm sure we'll find out, but you probably already know, and I'm just curious. He's talking about he has what things he has inside of um, his little knapsack or his little leather pouch. What what it, what letter from his mother? I don't remember what that is. <laughs> She's very excited. I had this noted. Also, I'm very excited okay. that you brought this up because um, I, we we had kind of chatted at one point in a previous episode about where where the piece mm-hmm. of the mirror was and like where these different elements were. So this is a letter that they find at uh, 1312. Grimald Place. Oh, that was a really bad mistake to make. Number 12 Grimald Place, people. I apologize for thinking it was 13. Um, the letter that Snape has ripped in half where he's kept oh. Lily's love and he's left the rest of the letter on the floor of Sirius's room. This is that letter. Okay. Wow. Yeah. See that enci- encyclopedic mm-hmm. knowledge, our own Hermione. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think of how much more I could know if I didn't know all these Harry Potter <laughs> and facts and bits it'd be, it'd be a really powerful brain if it weren't filled with harry potter <laughs> I, th- I think you're solid if you all don't know valerie has like 1000 websites that she runs and she knows everything about everything so i think you're i think you're good but <laughs> okay what else jumped at you from this chapter so yeah so i was trying to picture there's actually two things but I'll, we can go in Actually, you know what i think it all goes together so basically whenever harry breaks the ice to me, I would just dive in. Like I would just light where the, the sword is and I would just go for it head first. He jumps in to torture himself a little and is like bracing himself to go to the sword. And I'm like, why are you doing that? This is frigid water that could possibly like kill you. You have smear seconds to be in that before, you know, you turn blue into a popsicle. Like, why would you just jump in like that? Yeah, what it's are you a thinking? fuller plunge, dude. What are you doing? Get in there and get out. Um, actually, what that that section I think is really interesting. I I feel like um, Hermione would have known the spell, but there's a spell that Dumbledore uses in Half Blood Prince where he dries Harry's clothes and warms him. <laughs> I feel like that's a really oh. important spell to know. Yeah. It's um once they go they swim to the cave, mm-hmm. and it's like Harry should have thought it through. Like, okay, I know where the sword is. I need to be able to dry myself off after I get out of the water because it's snowy and cold. And he just jumps in and then he like treads water for a second before he puts his <laughs> head in, which I agree with you. Like, just get in there, get out. You're risking your health and you don't even know the spell to warm yourself up afterward. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Sometimes he does not think everything through, which you're right. Is why they have Hermione to, to do that. Um, mm-hmm. 
So here is my problem with the whole, with, with Ron coming. Because in my head, before the end of the chapter, which we learn how Ron actually did it, I picture Ron came, saw Harry being choked, grabbed the sword of Gryffindor, grabbed the chain, broke it, and then pulled Harry up. But according to the end of the chapter, he dived in, saved Harry, then returned for the sword. So if he saved Harry, I'm just, I don't understand how the Horcrux didn't like fight him on that. Like, how was he able to, like, you know what I mean? Like, hmm. it's on page 386 if you want it. But yeah, it says he dived in, saved Harry, then returned for the sword, hmm. mm-hmm. which does not make sense to me mm-hmm. because he had broken the chain with his hands, which means he came back to the snow, grabbed the locket, and then broke it after he had saved Harry, which just doesn't track to me. Yeah, I don't quite know the order of operations there. I agree. I did not catch mm-hmm. that he goes basically goes back in the water. Yeah, I'm not sure. Or maybe he didn't use the sword to break the... He didn't use the sword to break the chain, right? Mm. I can't quite picture the order as she describes it. So yeah, if someone else has a better way of explaining that, that how everything happened, in what order. Because my... Mm-hmm. I mean, the film is obviously one interpretation, but my remembering is that Harry maybe still has the Horcrux on him as he comes out of the water. That Ron just dives in to help lift him back out because mm-hmm. he's trapped under the ice. I'm not 100% sure. I look forward to seeing that when we watch the film. Do you have anything else from this chapter? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I find it, found it interesting whenever um, Ron opens the Horcrux, the first thing is that he looks back at Harry and Harry sees that his eyes are scarlet. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was um, interesting, the way that it almost possessed him. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just wonder why his eyes were scarlet. Okay, so let's come back to that because there's a couple things I want to cover. We're kind of moving through this chapter in relatively linear order. So um, the first thing is that this is where we hear Harry using parcel tongue, which is Mm. highly relevant for Ron using parcel tongue later. Like I could not for the life of me remember like how Harry, how Ron would remember parcel tongue to be able to say it in the Chamber of Secrets all that all those years later, because he really hasn't heard Harry speak it since they were second years. Yeah. But he, he says open here, and that's kind of the magic word that Ron is then able to imitate. Yeah. So I just really quick wanted to point that out, that, that that kind of gave me that piece of evidence I needed to make sense of a scene. And then with the scarlet eyes, the way I read that section is after the Horcrux tortures Ron, basically, mm-hmm. and he lifts the sword, his eyes look scarlet, but it's I always kind of got it like it was reflecting what the Horcrux was showing him, not that it was truly possessing him, Mm -hmm. but it's enough that Harry can't quite tell. Okay. Okay. And so he he isn't able to clearly interpret that Ron is going to hit the Horcrux, which is why he dives out of the way Mm -hmm. when Ron finally does stab it. Mm -hmm. But it was just enough to, to be unclear because Ron has just said, it affects me differently than it affects you. Yeah. And we kind of know that the Weasleys are susceptible because Ginny's also possessed by Tom Riddle slash Lord Voldemort too. So I think it's a very different reaction, but it's meant to be a little bit ambiguous. That's why his eyes look, I can't find it exactly mentioned, but uh, Harry thought he saw a trace of scarlet in his eyes, but it's like, he can't quite tell and it's meant to be ambiguous. So is that maybe like bloodlust almost? Or I always just kind of thought it was a reflection of, literally like a reflection of what's being dis- shown mm-hmm. by the yeah. Horcrux. You know, what you said about um, Ginny and the Weasleys, it, it is an interesting theory because I wonder if the reason that they are so easily affected 
is because, you know, Hermione obviously had a decent childhood from what we understand. It was loving, but she's also very aware of evil and aware of all the things. I just kind of wonder if Ron and the Weasleys have been around it for so long that it's not as scary to them. And so they just were so well loved and grew up in all this magic that when dark magic comes to them, there's it e- affects them because mm-hmm. they don't think anything of it. Mm-hmm. And they just think, oh, it's my own mind, where if it were to happen to Harry or Hermione, they'd be like, whoa, this mm-hmm. could be magic. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Almost like the boiling frog idea that like they're because they grew up in magic, when magic happens to them, it's less obvious that it's happening to them than Harry or Hermione who didn't grow up with that in their lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, one thing I did, I did kind of lament, and obviously like this book is not meant to be prescriptive or a social document, uh, is that there's this scene where Ron is really emotionally affected by what's just happened in destroying the Horcrux. And instead of letting these two young men have a moment to acknowledge their humanity in a way that's healthy, she, Mm -hmm. this, this chapter sort of read, like she kind of lets them avoid engaging with their emotions, which I think we want to encourage young men to feel emotions and have a supportive environment and learn how to healthily process them. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. quite happen here. Like, we're seeing most of it from Ron's perspective or from Harry's perspective and Harry's like looking away, letting Ron not really engage with him. You know, it just, for me, I was like, I feel like even since this book came out, the world has changed Mm. enough where we want to see young men having emotion and that being, being allowed to express it and being supported by other men in their emotions, which I'm definitely on a little, little soapbox here, but we want that. And this chapter doesn't give them that. And I wish it obviously can't change it, but I think there are several times where Harry does the same thing. I mean, it's either in Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets where he gets very emotional when talking to Dumbledore and he kind of hides his eyes to wipe his tears. And it's like, yeah, we need young men in books to be able to express their emotions so that young men in real life feel like they can too. Yeah. And we don't yeah. get that here. No, 100%. You're right. Um, especially because I was, like I said, I was I was moved by that part of the, the section where I don't think before I just found it awkward and kind of stupid. Like, especially in the movie, I hated this scene in the movie where you have Hermione and um, Harry like dancing and all this stuff. I, I absolutely hated it. Um, but reading it in the book, it was very personal, very sad. It is literally seeing someone's worst nightmares, their most worst inner thoughts. And it just gives us more light to Ron and understanding his actions throughout the entire book, understanding that he is jealous and he does have these doubts and insecurities And he is very, you know, human Mm -hmm. and he has these feelings and he's able throughout the entire book to fight them. Not always well, but he does fight them and he does maintain friendships with them, even though he feels probably very ordinary compared to Hermione and Harry. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not just the two of them that he has uh, insecurities about. It's his own mother in that she she was just trying to have a daughter and she kept having sons. And so he, as the last son before a daughter, isn't really wanted. Right. And that does come through at other points in the series too. And I think it's a very, I'm glad that that's also included because it shows that Ron's insecurities about himself and being worthy predate Harry and Hermione. Yeah. They come from being this youngest son before a daughter, which I always kind of, I always kind of understood that too. Like there are families where you want certain certain kids and if you don't have them, you just keep having them till you do. But what do the kids in the middle feel like when they weren't the reason they weren't the reason that, that you were originally having them? And I, yeah. I kind of really appreciate that that's also here because it does show that that thread runs from his very early childhood. Yeah, true. Uh, and it makes more sense of him as a character. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Uh, 
I like the character arcs we see, and I do think there is a little bit of an ending to Ron and Harry's in this moment too, because it kind of cements their friendship. They finally fully understand each other because although you're right, there should have been more, I still appreciated that although Harry looked to the side, once Ron is kind of, he's in, he's in almost like a curled ball kind of, you know, he's got his hands over his like eyes or his head and Harry walks over to him and he's like, he has a realization. He never realized that even for a second, Ron would think that him and Hermione had a thing. And of course he would. If it was never spoken, if they never talked about it really, mm -hmm. then why wouldn't he think like, oh, Harry, if I like her, then Harry must like her too. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I think Harry's so cool, then Hermione must think he's cool too. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically like, look, I just think of her as a sister. I'm so sorry. Um, and they do hug. Mm -hmm. So again, not enough, mm -hmm. but she gave them something. And for me, that was, I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool that we got to see that character arc. And then we also got to see... This section right here where he says, basically Harry's like, oh my God, you were so amazing. And Ron says, that stuff makes me sound a lot cooler than I was. Ron mumbled, stuff like that always sounds cooler than it really was, said Harry. I've been trying to tell you that for years. <laughs> right. It finally, they finally understand each other because I mm -hmm. think up until this point, Ron has always kind of assumed Harry was just um, downplaying his own role and how awesome these adventures really are and how heroic he really is. And Ron finally has that moment and realizes, no, like Harry's been accurately representing it. And he, they kind of, they do come to an understanding about their relationship, which is not one that has threat in it anymore, really. Yeah. Ron doesn't need to be insecure about Harry with Hermione. And Ron doesn't need to be insecure about Harry being really that cool because it's actually not that cool. It's actually scary and, you know, threatening and, you know, not as cool as it really sounds when you tell a story. Um, I, yeah, I like that. I had that marked as well as that it always sounds cooler than it really was. I've been telling you that for years because yeah. that is where Ron finally gets all of his insecurities about Harry addressed very rapidly. Yeah. And maybe there was a little bit for Harry there too, where, you know, one of his biggest fears I imagine is being left and Ron did that. His very best friend did leave him, but he came back and that's all it took for Harry. You've saved my life. You're back. He just was so happy to have him back. And maybe there was, maybe that fear is gone too, because now he knows that Ron understands him mm -hmm. and that even though he left, he will always come back. Yeah. And I think you're right about that because in the next chapter we're about to cover, it's very clear that Harry is very hurt by Ron leaving. He puts him in the same category mm -hmm. as Dumbledore dying. And his wand being broken. Yeah. Those are the three main losses he has in the chapter we're just going to skip to in a minute. And that shows how much losing things means to Harry. And it makes sense because he's lost so much already. Yeah. Mm, that's so sad. Uh, yeah. So did you notice anything from this section before we move on to the Hermione part? Um, no, I have a note here, but I don't know what it's for. <laughs> So I find this next part very entertaining and very funny. Uh, what did you think of? So Ron walks back into the tent and Hermione, Harry is expecting this jubilant, excited Hermione like at Ron's return. It's not not quite what happens. Mm -mm, not at all. And I kind of, I get it. I get it, right? Like um, this reveals how hurt Hermione was, which she had been yeah. hiding from Harry, I think to protect Harry mm -hmm. because Part of the fight with Ron leaving is Harry doesn't know what he's doing. Why are we following him? Aren't you leaving with me? And she says, no, we gave Harry our word. So she doesn't want to reveal any doubt, but she's surely got to be feeling that pain when she loses her other support in the group. Really expresses a lot of emotion we don't typically see from Hermione too. Not at all. Yeah, you never see that from Hermione. Not really. You know, she might get a little annoyed with people, but she doesn't scream and yell. It's almost, you know, what's funny. I just thought of this. It also reminds me of Ron's mother a little bit. 
mm-hmm. when she gets a temper. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very true. It does kind of come across like that. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so well done for me. Like the whole time you, I felt like I was Harry. I I'm sure everyone's been in that position where either your parent was getting onto a sibling or you're at a friend's house and they're getting in trouble for something kind of you both did maybe. And you're, you keep trying to stand up for them. And the parent is just like, you know, you're trying to blend, you're like against the wall, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you're like, but wait, this happened. And they're like, not even paying attention to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You just want to disappear. Yeah. I think Harry was like, blending into the canvas of the tent thinking there yeah. would be a tender moment and then it's like oh my gosh I need to cast a shield charm between these two because this is not going the way I planned it would yeah. <laughs> yeah right he had to cast a shield charm because she was punching him yeah yeah amazing and what did you think of the deluminator I wanted to touch on that right before we wrap oh. this chapter up yeah yeah I noticed that yeah I, it was interesting you know it's like Ron's heart so there, there's some magic to the deluminator that I don't know that I quite understand I'm hoping you can fill in the gaps there but it obviously still it it's not just obviously it doesn't just light things but it connects to the light within you or I don't know what did you think of that the fact that the deluminator literally went inside of Ron and not only did it go inside of Ron the first thing he heard from it was Hermione which means it's connected to him in that way that he would want Hermione or I guess to find his way which is to Hermione yeah, this is one of those moments that I think when I've always stumbled is this is a deus ex machina, a thing which had no magical ability like this before suddenly has a new magical ability that solves a bunch of problems, um, which yeah. means I don't, in theory, love it, right? Because I okay. don't want, I, I would want evidence that this object had been able to do this kind of magic before to make it believable that it can do this magic now. And we have zero evidence of that. Obviously, I can't fix that. But Mm -hmm. I I find the whole idea that Dumbledore is creating things because he actually invented the Deluminator that can do this kind of magic, totally fascinating. And I want The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore to be a real book. Like we have all these other books that have been made about the Harry Potter series. Give me that one. Explain the magic of this person who's able to invent magic that is unknown and it threatens the most evil wizards in the world like they all agree they're afraid of Dumbledore Dumbledore is really powerful like let's see that story that's the one I want which I'm sure we won't get in the Fantastic Beasts movie but a girl can dream yeah yeah for sure I mean it it does make sense though because isn't what the note he left was to always light your way or something like that so there's a magic in that the fact that it's not just to literally light your way but it's to figuratively get you back home which is um Mm -hmm. yeah a special kind of magic where it literally does that for you yeah. Let's see if I can find that really briefly while we look around. Uh, to, Ron, to Ronald Billius Weasley, I leave you my deluminator in the hope that he will remember me when he uses it. Oh, that's it? That's it. Oh, I thought it said, oh, well, there goes my whole theory. <laughs> that's he it. will remember me when he uses it. Yeah. That's why I think I, 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 I like that it works. It's a cool literary mechanism but I also am like you didn't give me any evidence that this thing could do anything more than I thought it could now it is used for the original magic it's originally designed for right because when they get caught by the snatchers he clicks out the lights in the tent and then he has those lights when they get into Malfoy Manor in the basement and that's super helpful cool magic good application of the thing we know works this way but that's not this magic and this magic has never been told talked about before it's like uh I might make some people mad but like in um Star Wars, the newer ones, where Leia can just, like, use Force to come back from the dead. You know, like, mm-hmm. the Force has never been used that way. You can't change the rules in the eighth hour. Before <laughs> we get, you know, like, that's not how this works. Um, yeah. But, yeah, just it, it's one of those things where it's like, I wish you had given me a 
thread, just the tiniest bit, because I would have caught it and it would have not made me wonder why all of a sudden can this thing do that the thing that it never could before. Yeah. We'll have to do some research on that. Maybe we'll find yeah. somewhere. Yeah. I don't know where I came up with that unless it's in the movies about always lighting your way or something like that. It could be. They could have changed the di- the the dialogue in the movies for sure. Okay, so let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 18. Hey, so let's make the galleons to keep the show going. Have you heard of the Osseo box? The Osseo box is the magical world's only vegan and cruelty-free indie subscription box, and it's perfect if you still need a little more magic in your life after listening to this week's episode of The Glittering Bell Jar. Each monthly box is a theme from the wizarding world. Past boxes include big witch energy, house pride, and magical books. You can also buy past boxes and themed character boxes. You know which one we want, hashtag Neville Fan Club. Visit our sister site at followthebutterflies.com slash Osseobox to sign up today and you'll receive 20% off your box or subscription. That's followthebutterflies.com slash Osseobox to sign up for the Osseobox. Thanks for supporting our show. Now let's get back to the wizarding world. So the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. In this chapter, Hermione and Harry read the book, Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, where they learn about his life as a teenager, including his close relationship with Grindelwald. Uh, We learn that he had not always been a champion of the Muggles, at least not in the way we understand it now. He had been planning to overthrow the Statue of Secrecy and establish rule over the Muggles. We learn a part of Dumbledore that no one had known, a different side to him. Yep, and the final sentence of this chapter is, Harry closed his eyes at her touch and hated himself for wishing that what she said was true, that Dumbledore had really cared. Mm. Yeah. His relationship with Dumbledore is so interesting and so sad and complicated and it it's very heartbreaking. Yeah, I actually found that I had more context in this chapter having read it in reverse of Harry's anger. Mm-hmm. I really liked how how very white hot his anger with Dumbledore seems in this chapter because I think it makes sense because he's building to that anger when you read it in the order that the chapters are written Mm -hmm. when you're coming from reverse his anger is very feels very sudden in this chapter and Mm -hmm. understandable because we now see what it what Dumbledore's obfuscations and secrecy cost Harry in the end yeah I, I do like to think about and I know it's been six months or maybe more maybe seven since Ron returned but I like that by the end, it was so hairy. He let go of the anger. By the time he got to King's Cross, he had let go of that. And that is just, you know, maybe part of Harry's trauma, but also it part of his character, mm-hmm. whether it was from his trauma or not, mm-hmm. he does quickly forgive people. Yeah. He does see the best of them and forgive them because he's probably because he's seen the worst of people. So he knows if something's, a, you know, a bad person, you know, like the Dudleys where he's like, he's not, he was good. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's really, it's really interesting to see the emotional arcs in reverse, right? Because mm-hmm. they, anger is one of those that like builds over time and then typically like drops off. And then when you approach it from backwards, it's like it just appears suddenly and it's going to taper as yeah. we move backwards. Mm-hmm. I also found this chapter interesting and you kind of mentioned before, but Harry's relationship with his wand, his wand has been with him for a long time. You know, it was mm-hmm. his, I think, you know, he had Hedwig, he had let's see, Hagrid, you know what I mean? I'm trying to think the the strong, the stable things in his life. And his wand was this protector of him. It's the one thing that he was able to kind of control and that understood him and protected him from Voldemort. And it it is run, it is gone. And he is struggling with that, you know? Mm-hmm. He, he Despite what Hermione's saying, he, he feels this magical, of course, connection with it. And I, I kind of love seeing mm-hmm. that. And we know that there is one. Correct. Yeah, we know that there is a connection like that, that 
their wands have a greater meaning and that they are that Voldemort and Harry are more connected than many wizards are historically. Um, so their magic is obviously connected too. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. I mean, we did just chat about how in the list of things that Harry has lost in this chapter, he says Ron and Dumbledore and his wand. And that is how important it is. Mm-hmm. It was interesting you said Hedwig and Hagrid though, because actually those three items or people or characters all came into his life on the same day, mm. which is the day he goes to Diagon Alley the yeah. first time. So like those all have the same origin and he's lost. First he loses he- Hedwig and then his wand. And then, you know, he- thankfully not Hagrid, though that's always sort of a threat that's hanging out there because Hagrid gets attacked many times in the books. Um, yeah. These these like keystone pieces of his magical education on his very first day of knowing he was a wizard that are threatened throughout the course of the series and in particular this book. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I also love, you kind of said it, but with the wand, we are constantly getting crumbs to help us understand the theories in this book. For instance, this just tells us how wands are related to the wizard, which then explains the the elder wand and basically Voldemort's failure. So I look forward to seeing more of these, you know, little crumbs, crumb trails. Mm-hmm. This, this chapter is really interesting, though, to, to take notes on. And I don't know if you feel this way. I don't have very many notes because it is a mm-hmm. chapter of a chapter, right? So it's like yeah. we get dropped into another book through this chapter. And so a lot of what I have notes on, and this probably is going to make this chapter seem like it goes really fast, is more about the details that are in this chapter of the life and lives of Albus Dumbledore that aren't necessarily related to the narrative of Harry Potter or even, right. you know, Deathly Hallows or Harry Potter as a whole. So, like, um, I catch that. The Batilda is telling Rita in the interview about how Galert was there when Ariana was killed. And what I noticed in that particular scene is like, it gives a sense that Rita Skeeter does have a sense of truth, but she's also warping it, right? You you do get that. It's not the truth that Aberforth tells them at the end, which I would presume is the closest story to the truth. Yeah. It's close, but it's still like, it's Batilda who wasn't there, told to Rita, who's, you know editorializing it because that's what she does. Mm-hmm. Also that we know now that according to JK Rowling, Galer Grindelwald and Albus Dumbledore were in love. They were, they were gay. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. so that I tried to find that yes. in this book Same. and it's not here. Personally, I didn't find it. Really? Yeah. The only time I see it is there's a line where um, Rita Skeeter's questioning why Dumbledore took so long to attack Grindelwald Mm -hmm. and he says a lingering affection for his boyhood friendship and I'm like you're stating pretty clear that like Rita at least doesn't get a sense that there's any sort of other relationship between them and it doesn't really have that sort of veiled language I I think it's interesting that people picked up on it and asked and she confirmed it Mm -hmm. because I don't really get that from this chapter so the only other line that I found interesting is um where she mentions that at the funeral he would have a what he would have been a comfort to Albus at least um, and they were sending each other notes in the middle of the night there, you know, and, and you could say that's boyhood, but that they were like 17. You know what I mean? That's more of a like time when you're falling in love with your, your first love. It's not your 13, you know, your nine to 13 year old boyhood friend where you're like, you know, on, over hopefully best friends, you know, looking in the window or something. This is, that's more of a love story to me. I mean, I, I don't know. I was on MSN Messenger when I was a teenager in the middle of the <laughs> night talking with friends so, <laughs> that I just dated how old I am. And I did that on purpose. Oh like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I still don't quite read it that way. I obviously acknowledge and I'm looking yeah. for it because we know that that's the official canon, but I don't really see it in the chapter the same way. I see a very close friendship. And I guess that's, um, I see a lot of times on Twitter, this conversation about how platonic 
relationships are somehow devalued compared to romantic mm-hmm. ones. And that sort of, to me, is like a platonic relationship can be this close and it yeah. can be valued that much, but 100%. that doesn't make it any less valuable and, and any have any less affection. So that's where the language just isn't, it isn't obvious enough. I guess I needed to be whacked over the head with it to get it, which is <laughs> me and a lot of my life outside of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. What about, so for the greater good, I, I, I caught that. So Dumbledore, I don't actually like, this doesn't, I guess shock me because we're going backwards, but Dumbledore was always for the greater good. And in his mind, this was for the greater good. And once he was kind of smacked over the head with this is not what the greater good is, he stopped and he changed his philosophy. I think that's like super powerful to be on this path of being a very evil wizard, even though he thought what he was doing was right, which is anyone who's the bad guy in the story, right? Like Thanos, he's like, this is for the greater good. I'm saving earth, right? Mm-hmm. Saving mm-hmm. saving humankind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I liked that inside the the chapter, it talks about how that was Dumbledore's line, which ended up becoming Grindelwald's line. Mm-hmm. But it came from Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people who do take a position of authority and do good with it. And so I think, mm-hmm. again, we see Harry with the same way that he talks with Ron. We discussed last episode how he says, but they're the same age we are. We're not behaving that way. I don't know that Dumbledore had a full concept. And he actually admits this in King's Cross. He didn't have a full concept of what Grindelwald really meant. Right. Um, right what that actually was going to look like practically, I think, or he was deluding himself about yeah. that because Grindelwald at this point, 16, 17 years old, has been expelled for conducting magical experiments on fellow students and nearly killing them. Like yeah. that's very clear. <laughs> and Dumbledore is sort of deluding himself to that as one of the mechanisms which by which one would take control of the muggle population. I actually did some research into the statute of secrecy because mm-hmm. I was like, well, how old was the statute of secrecy that Rita, Rita claims they were going to overthrow the statue? Well, it's from the 1700s. I mean, a lot of laws from the 1700s have been changed. It's not that wild to think that in the early 20th century, young progressive people would have been questioning rules that had been in place for several hundred years. I mean, we just yeah. think in the muggle world, right? That's when women get the right to vote. That was not a thing when the U.S. was created as a country, which <laughs> right. is about the same timelines, right? Yeah. Um, for sure. So I guess, you know, I I am more forgiving that like, I was kind of like harsh in previous episodes, but I also understand that like 17 year olds don't have the full concept of the world. And it's not mm-hmm. a surprise that they come up with ideas that maybe don't make sense or aren't going to work in the practical way that they expect. And that we need to teach them as adults how to navigate that path. And we already know we've discussed Dumbledore doesn't have any guidance anymore. He's doing it on his own. Yeah. He's lost both his parents and he has no parent figures. So of course he gets swayed by this charming young man that he falls in love with. That's very 17 year old. The only other thing that I noticed, uh, the last note that I have was about Aberforth chucking goat dung at people <laughs> in Godric's Hollow. Yes. I remember I said I wanted to keep an eye on Aberforth and his goats. So his love of goats starts at a very young age. And I'm super curious to see what other little gems of Aberforth's mm-hmm. love of goats come through as we read through the books, because there's another, I just, I just think that the story of the Dumbledores is so important to understanding Harry's path. Yeah. And yet we get just little tiny tidbits Pretty of it over the course of, of this book and the, the series, right? Yeah. So that's all I had. Did you have anything else? Um, well, I have a couple things and I'll be quick. Uh, on top of what you just said, another line was the wild young brother. And that is mm-hmm. talking about Aberforth, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's going to be hard for me to go quick, but I will. So basically I could dive into this and go crazy with it on a rabbit hole, but we get to see that his mother didn't like others. 
which is very interesting. And it makes me wonder if she also maybe had some kind of mental illness or some kind of trauma that happened because I had to do my, basically my academic essay on We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is basically about two sisters who seclude themselves from the world because of the trauma. And it made me think of that. Like what kind of life did Albus have? Because his mother literally, the neighborhood didn't like her. She didn't like the neighborhood. She had the one friend, Mathilda, and that was it. So, you know, that kind of gives light to why they kept Ariana the way they did, which Mm -hmm. I agree with Rita, where she said, for though her first jailer had died, there was no change in the pitiful condition in Ariana Dumbledore. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think they were like like jailers. I don't think Mm -hmm. they meant to be, but it ended up just running all of their lives, which we've talked about before, but... And then it's no surprise that Albus, when meeting a young man who expresses interest in him and captivates his imagination, would be Mm -hmm. so charmed by someone who's basically a sociopath, right? I mean, that's what we can (laughs) sort of assume that Grindelwald is as he goes on his rampage of conquest. Um, It's no surprise then when also he has no parents and the parents he had didn't really teach him how to Mm -hmm. interact with other people in a way that was both open but still like guarded in a a Mm. self-preservation way. Yeah, that's so true. Cool. Well, I know this was a lot and we kind of breezed through this last chapter. I'm sure we're going to come back to it. All right. So we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback or you just want to talk about the episode, um, hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Um, It's at Pod. Pod. Uh, We do have an email, Valerie. Yeah, so the email you can reach us at is podcast at followthebutterflies.com. And if you want even more Harry Potter in your life, that website, followthebutterflies.com, is full of other Harry Potter resources. If you want more Harry Potter, that is the place to get it. And uh, as a reminder, leave us a five-star review. We want to hear from you, whether that's a review or following us on social and contacting us there. And uh, we will be back next week with another new episode. Yeah, excited for next week. See you next time. Glittering Bell Jar is a Harry Potter podcast produced by the Calibro Group in partnership with Wild Goose Creatives. It is an unofficial fan project and is not authorized, approved, licensed, or endorsed by J.K. Rowling, her publishers, or Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated. Our theme music is Carnival of the Animals R125, Aquarium by Moments, licensed via Soundstripe. You can discover even more magic on followthebutterflies.com.